Hey, what's happening? It is good to worship the Lord, amen? amen? My goodness. I don't know. I don't know about you, but what better use of our time than just to stop what we're doing and worship the Almighty? We get to do that. What a privilege. What a joy. It's good to see all you guys. I hope you're staying cool. Yeah? Days like yesterday and today are reminders that it's good to be a Christian. You get what I'm saying, right? It's like you think it's hot today. Wow. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. That's like the low-lying fruit of humor. So bad. I am just so naughty. And uh, you guys keep showing up, so there's something wrong with you too. It's good to be with you guys, man. I can't believe we get to do this. I say that every weekend, but what a, what a privilege. It's good to see some of you. Some of you haven't seen for a while. Lord bless you. So good to be with you. Um, the first thing I want to mention is we have a local outreach meeting next Sunday. I think we have a slide for that. Yep, there's child care for that. So bring your kids, but man, show up. We, we got to get outside these walls. We're going to get outside these walls and let people know about the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that resides within you. We need to help reside in others as well as we're called to do as the church. Amen? So next Sunday, room 210, which is upstairs. Um, I don't even know. Is there like food? Do we have food? I'm sure there's food. There's usually always food and stuff to drink. So uh, if there's not food, let me know and I'll bring you food. Um, be happy to be there. Bless you that way. Um, last, a uh, couple days ago, when was the 4th of July? Was that Wednesday? Wednesday. So in Heath, go ahead and throw up that picture. So we had a, we had a, a float. Uh, check this out. Is that awesome or what? Yeah. So... Uh, uh, Pastor Chris has met over the months with a lot of the, the city leaders and the mayor's office called and just said, would you guys be willing to just kind of coordinate all the floats and just kind of run things and, and organize things, which is just such favor from the city. And they said there's just a ton of people. And then um, I think it's funny, the, the, we won an award for our float, most spirited. I, I guess that's better than most holy spirited. But um, uh, they just said it was an amazing day. And so we got to uh, just meet so many people and all the people that had floats. We just were able to give them some snacks and, and drinks and uh, just bless them. So um, God just continues to do great things. Is that just amazing? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that church with those people, man? I love it. And then as a reminder, as I think you already know, but in two weeks, is that right? Two weeks from this weekend, uh, Pastor Chris will be here on July 21st and 22nd to preach from Esther 5. I'll be doing Esther 3 today, Esther 4 next weekend, and then Pastor Chris will uh, be here with Renee and their two kids coming in on a Friday. And they'll be leaving the following uh, Wednesday, I think. Um, so put that on your calendars. Don't miss that incredible weekend. So I think that's it. I think we got it covered. All right, I'm good. I, you know, I don't know about you. I, I have no idea uh, sometimes what's going to come out of my mouth, even though it's all on paper. But I will tell you this. I sure enjoy studying all week. I just love wrestling with Scripture and getting, getting into the story and into the characters and, and just reading and studying. And um, I'm, I love this book. I love God's Word. And I hope you're enjoying it as much as, much as uh, myself. I pray that you are. All right. I think, I think, I think I'm good to go. All right. I'm going to put a quote on the board. This is from Dr. A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson is the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. They have about 2,000 churches across the United States and other things around the world. He says this. He says, God is preparing his heroes. And when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment. 
and the world will wonder where they came from. Is that cool? You might be one of those heroes that God is preparing for that moment. Certainly, Esther was divinely prepared for her role as queen. Amen? One commentary said this, God is never surprised by circumstances or at a loss for prepared servants. You don't catch God off guard, people. He's always, always prepared and has prepared servants to accomplish his purposes and his will. He had Joseph ready in Egypt, if you recall. He had Ezekiel and Daniel in Babylon, and now we see Esther and Mordecai in the Persian Empire. Decisions made today in high places of government seem remote from the everyday lives of God's people sometimes. So it's good to know that God is on his throne and that no decision is made that can thwart his purposes. Isn't that encouraging? The book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 35, says this. This is from the New Living Translation. Check out this, church. How powerful is this? All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. It's so fun when we can call each other nobodies and get away with it (laughs) when Scripture says as much, right? All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of heaven of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? Is that a powerful verse or what? Wow. So for four peaceful years, from chapter two to chapter three, four years has gone by. Four years, church. And so for four peaceful years, Esther has been queen and Mordecai has tended to the king's business at the gate where the business of the king took place. Let's read Esther chapter 3. We'll say a few things and then we will pray. So good to be with you guys. Esther chapter 3, starting in verse 1. After these things, or after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning Haman. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? I actually really like how these men handle the conflict. They handle it biblically. They actually go to the offender and say, dude, what are you doing? And then they continue. Now it was when they had spoken daily. So they they talked to Mordecai daily. And he would not listen to them. And then they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. Handled in such a healthy way. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And so they were checking that with Haman to see if that was okay. And when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained or refrained to lay hands on Mordecai by himself, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Well, that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? you got Jews, arguably, in 127 provinces, that he wants to kill them all because of the acts of one man. So he sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, 
So in the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast, it's like rolling dice, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month. They did that from the first month until the 12th month, the month of Adar, 12 months. Then Haman, verse 8, said to the king, there's a certain people. So after the 11 months of rolling the dice, he gets a date. And so now he's got to develop a plan. So Haman says to the king, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed amongst the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. And their laws are different from those of all other people. And they do not observe the king's laws. And so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Wow. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. 10,000 talents of silver. One talent of silver is equal to 16 years' wages. One talent of silver is 16 years' wages. 10,000 talents is 160,000 years' wages. So that is, in today's dollars, between four and a half to six billion dollars, depending on what you pay an average worker. The entire Persian Empire's revenue of all 127 provinces was 15,000 talents of silver. The entire revenue of the whole kingdom, the whole Persian Empire, was 15,000 talents. And Haman says, I'll give you 10,000 talents. <laughs> That's rage. Crazy. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to him, keep the silver. The silver is yours and the people also do with him as you please. Wow. No questions asked. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. So this is nearly a year later. And it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps. That means leaders of multiple provinces. The king's satraps to the governors, that's a governor who oversaw each province, and the princes of each people within the provinces. Each province according to its script, and each people according to its language. In other words, nobody was missed. Everybody understood what was being decreed, is what the author is trying to show us. King has, and so it was written in the name of the king and sealed with his signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, so nearly 12 months later, it was decreed, which is the month Adar. And to seize their possessions as plunder, which is arguably where he was going to come up with the 10,000 talents of silver, was from the Israelites. Verse 14, so a copy of the edict to be issued as law, a copy of the edict to be issued in every province was published to all the peoples. I mean, look at this, so that they should be ready for this day. How do you get ready for a day like that? You're going to get wiped out in about 11 months. Be prepared. What's there to prepare, really? The couriers, verse 15, went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa and while the king and Haman sat down to drink. The entire city of Susa was in confusion. That is a gnarly, gnarly chapter. Breaks my heart. 
the theme, I just think it's good to do this. I might do this every week. The theme of the book of Esther is God's faithfulness, as Pastor Dave opened us up with a few weeks ago. The purpose of Esther is to demonstrate God's sovereignty in all of our circumstances. Amen? And then again, this quote from Pastor Dave that I think is so powerful when he said, my dear brothers and sisters, we have a decision to make. Let's not read the book of Esther and think, wow, the Lord sure knew what he was doing in her life. Instead, let's read this book together and realize the Lord knows exactly what he's doing in your life and in my life. Let's decide, Pastor Dave said, let's decide that we're going to trust him completely in every situation. Raise your hand if you had an opportunity to trust God completely this week. Really, that's a lot. I, I, I'm guessing that the weeks ahead might be the same. And so we have a decision to make to trust him completely. Pastor Dave also said that the plot is, of Esther is this, that God takes a young orphan girl and causes her to become queen of the Persian Empire to save her people. And then as I mentioned last week, God is in control. When? All day, every day. God is in control all day, every day. There's not a moment when it slips his mind like, oh darn, I forgot to keep things running for a few minutes. I'm so sorry. God is in control all day, every day. And so when we're at times maybe crying on each other's shoulders, we can lovingly say to our brothers and sisters, I love you and I want you to know that God is in control all day, every day. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, <laughs> we thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you that you are in control all day, every day. We thank you for this book of Esther that's such a compelling story to remind us, Lord, that you're in control and that you can be trusted and that you provide for your people whom you love. And for that, we say thank you, and we bow down before you in worship and praise of who you are as our God and our King. It's in your mighty name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Cool, and off we go. So here's the outline for our verses, for our 15 verses. The first uh, stanza is Haman's promotion. Haman gets a promotion. Wahoo! Right? He gets a promotion in verse 1. And then he gets preoccupied with Mordecai and Mordecai's unwillingness to bow down to him. So he gets preoccupied not only with Mordecai, but anybody even connected to Mordecai. And he can't let it go. And he wants to wipe out everybody. And then, of course, he creates a plan to purge every person of Jewish descent. It's crazy. So that's our outline. Let's reread verses 1 through 6 in our first stanza. Esther 3, 1 through 6. So after these things, so four years has gone by, after these events, king promotes Haman, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down to Haman and paid homage, for so the king had commanded people to do so. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. The king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen that they finally tell Haman about what's going on and to see if Mordecai's reason would stand with Haman for he told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage, Haman was filled with rage. Never a good time to be making decisions. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews Seems like a bit of an overreaction to me. The people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So, here we see the promotion of Haman, the Agagite. Make no mistake, church, Haman is a despicable 
human being, as we just read. But at this point in the story, the Jews are not in any sort of danger. They haven't done anything to make anybody upset. What catapults them, the Jews, into this pending massacre is the behavior of one man. Who's that man? Mordecai. Everything's fine with the Jewish nation, but Mordecai chooses not to bow down or pay homage or kneel before a person of authority. Hmm. What's the problem, Mordecai? At first glance, we may applaud Mordecai for his refusal to pay homage to Haman. It may cause us to think about the book of Daniel and the refusal of three young Hebrew men to bow and worship the king's golden image. That's not what Mordecai was being asked to do. Mordecai declares that his reason for transgressing the king's command is that he is Jewish. Mordecai is being a punk. But this wasn't an act of worship, as I already said. And no doubt, who do you think Mordecai did kneel before if he didn't kneel before Haman? The king, and possibly even his cousin. But he ain't going to kneel down to Esther, or to, uh, to Haman. There's an article that I looked up this week called, What to Do When You Meet the Queen. Just in case you meet the queen, Google this article, you'll know exactly what to do. We got close a couple years ago. We went to, where does she live? Where does the queen live in England? Buckingham Palace, Palace, is that what it's called? Well, we were there. That's how how much I was into it. It was pretty cool. Anyway, so in an article called What to Do When You Meet the Queen, Linda McRobbie gives some wonderful advice. It's a whole article. Some of it's just fantastic. Here's a few snippets. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. That's just one of the rules with the queen. When first meeting her, the very first time you say her name, it's your majesty. After that, you can call her ma'am, and then when you depart, you say your majesty again. Okay? Three, it is not acceptable to address the queen as Liz, (laughs) Lizzie, or Queenie. I thought that was very cute. Four, if you don't have one, it's not acceptable to adopt a British accent. I think that's pretty good advice. And then five, it's appropriate to bow or to curtsy. It's not showing worship to her. It's showing respect. If, if being Jewish was truly what drove Mordecai in chapter 3, then why did he allow in chapter 2 Esther to have sexual relations with a man that was not her husband? Hmm. See Exodus 20 if you want to read more about that. How could he, Mordecai, let her marry a pagan, which was also forbidden by Jewish law? You can see Deuteronomy 7 for that. He also allowed her to eat unclean food, which we see in Esther chapter 2, verse 9. Mordecai is not about, hey, I'm not bowing down because I'm a Jew. Mordecai is being a punk. Twice in chapter 2, Mordecai tells Esther not to make her people known. Hmm. Interesting. The book of Esther, on some level, can be contrasted with the book of Daniel. And here's what's so cool about that. Our amazing God can work his will and his way through obedience, book of Daniel, or disobedience, the book of Esther, and of course, Mordecai as well. I just think that's amazingly cool. The extremes in which God can work, and he's not thrown by any of that. I love it. It's not totally clear why Mordecai was unwilling to bow to Haman. 
more than likely it goes back to the tension between the Israelites and the Amalekites hundreds of years before. And guess who was the king of the Amalekites when they were in deep tension with the Israelites? Agag was the king. And so Haman's an Agagite. And you know how that goes when there's tensions that exist for years and years and years. And so I wonder, was it Mordecai's connection to the queen? <laughs> and if you remember last week, at the end of chapter 2, he saved the life of the king. Was it those two things, his connection to the queen and the saving of the life of the king, that gave him this dangerous confidence, perhaps a sense of entitlement? Sometimes we can get that way too. I deserve this, or I'm this, or I'm that. It appears Mordecai is not being obedient, but he's being obstinate. He is Jewish when it seems to benefit, and he's non-Jewish when it seems to benefit. That so far is Mordecai's life. We, church, are in danger when we do the same thing with our Christianity. When we use our Christianity when it benefits us, and we don't use our Christianity when it benefits us. Mordecai was using, essentially, the word of God, God's law, to judge others. I'm not going to bow down to him because I'm Jewish. Oh, really? But he was not using the word of God to judge himself or those under his care. He was not trusting God by telling Esther not to declare that she was Jewish, by allowing her to have sex, by allowing her to marry a pagan. Hmm. Like Mordecai, our pride often affects more than just ourselves. Now an entire nation is at risk because of Mordecai is being a punk. That's our first stanza. Let's look at our second stanza, Haman's preoccupation. Let's read verses 7 through 11 and look at Haman's preoccupation. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month. Until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. So he's persistently trying to figure out when he can wipe out the Jews. And then Haman said to the king, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed amongst the, among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all the other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Wow. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. And then the king took his ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to him, the silver is yours, I don't need it, and the people do with them what you want. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Here's some things that are worth noting in this in this section, we are now nine years into where the book started. If you remember from chapter 1, verse 3, it was the third year of the king. And now these verses tell us that in, in verse 7 of chapter 3, that we are now in the 12th year, the first month in the 12th year. We are now nine years, barely starting chapter 3, and we're nine years into the story. 
The second thing is that it's not hard to figure out that Haman is consumed with rage, stemming, obviously, from pride. I hope you and I don't act in the same capacity, where we let our pride and our rage cause us to do some hideous things, and sometimes we do. We let our emotions get the best of us, as it does in Haman's case. Consider Haman's fourfold argument to Ahasuerus. Check out verse 8. He has four things in his argument. Haman says to the king, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Is that true or false? True. Their laws are different from those of all other people and they do not observe. That's the second thing, that their laws are different from all the other people. Is that true or false? It's both. It's both true and false. Their laws are different, but not from, they're not all different. They're not all different from all the other people. And they do not observe the king's laws. Is that true or false? That's false. Jeremiah said you're going to be exiled. And he tells the nation, be obedient to the laws of the lands that you're going to get exiled to. So that's a complete lie. And so then he concludes by saying, so it is not in your interest, O king, to let them remain. Wow. It's a brilliant, brilliant display by Haman. Haman used a mixture of truth, non-truth, which we call lies, okay, and exaggeration. That's what's happening in verse 8. Truth, non-truth, and exaggeration to convince the king. One theologian puts it this way. I think it'll be on the screen. This is perfect. Haman's accusation of the Jews was diabolically clever in its construction. Proceeding as it did from the truth, they are scattered and dispersed, to a half-truth that their laws and customs are different, not all of them, some of them, to an outright lie, they do not observe the king's laws. They, they were all observing the king's laws. Only Mordecai, Mordecai the punk, was the guy that got them all in trouble. Boy, oh boy. The unhealthy conclusions we can come to and the unhealthy accusations we can make when emotions get the best of us like they did in Haman's case. When we let our emotions get the best of us, we can draw some unhealthy conclusions about other people and we can make some unhealthy accusations when emotions get the best of us. Which is why we must be grounded in the Word of God and why we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and be surrounded by His people so that we don't make foolish decisions that can impact the lives of many others. The potential for innocent people to be affected is very real in chapter 3. We see Haman's preoccupation as he is casting the lot for nearly 12 months. They said he did it every day for 12 months, looking for the answer of when and all their superstitions and how that worked, we don't have time to get into, would declare when he can wipe out these people. Every day for nearly 12 months, he cast the lot looking for a day that he can declare as the day they're going to wipe out the Jews. It's a lot of bitterness, man. It's a lot of bitterness. And we read the story of Haman and his tenacity in these 12 months to cast a lot and his bitterness that he has towards the Jewish people. And you know what? We're the same way sometimes. We just are. Something gets us sideways towards somebody and we just let this bitterness sit inside of us for so long. And we got to get rid of it. We got to go to whoever it is that we need to go to and get rid of that bitterness, man. It just, it just causes damage if we don't. Let me ask you, when people don't see us 
See, Haman didn't get seen the way he wanted to be seen. And sometimes we don't get seen the way we desire to be seen. So then do we, in response, see them differently? Do we respond the same way? I don't like the way you saw me, so I'm going to see you differently. We do that. We do that. We don't like the way people see us. And so then we choose to see them unfavorably. Imagine if God did that with us, church. Imagine if the Lord did that with us. So don't think that he doesn't expect us to do the same for others. Turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5. What is Matthew 5 known as? Sermon on the Mount, right? Beatitudes. Go to Matthew 5. Look how powerful this is. I mean, the Lord, church, the Lord has high expectations for his people. Should he not? Matthew 5. The last six verses of Matthew 5. First book of the New Testament. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I mean, right? Like that's the worldly knowledge, right? That's how the world works. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you do that? (laughs) Do we do that? So that you, (laughs) so that you, so that is an equal sign so that you may be sons of your Father who was in heaven. Hey, look, Jesus said, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect or holy as your heavenly Father is perfect and holy. Wow. Sometimes we act like Haman when we're not seen and treated the way that we desire to be seen and treated. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. You pray for those people, you love on those people, and you let the Lord deal with that as he desires to deal with it. Amen? Let's read our last stanza. Verses 12 through 15 in the book of Esther. Verses 12 through 15, chapter 3. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. They're declaring on the 13th day of the first month, they're going to put it in writing that all the Jews are going to be wiped out. Do you know what happens the next day of this month? Does anybody know? Raise your hand if you know. It's the beginning of Passover. The next day is the beginning of Passover. What does Passover remind the Jewish people of? God's deliverance from Egypt. It's just funny. They're about to go into Passover where God delivered them from bondage. And they're putting together another decree the day before that. I don't think that's ironic. So the scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, governors, and the princes, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's ring, his signet ring. 
And letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to seize their possessions as plunder. So they have 11 months to stew in their impending destruction and annihilation. That must have been horrible. A copy of the edict, verse 14, to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. And the couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa and while the king and Haman sat down to drink. That's rough, man. That's just rough. The city was in confusion, as you can well imagine. These verses are about as clear, concise, and cold as you may ever find in all of Scripture. It's just cold. It's cold-hearted. Verse 15 shows us that Ahasuerus and Haman are having cocktails after implementing a plan to annihilate an entire people group. Hey, think it's happy hour? Like, it's crazy. Clearly, the Jewish people were in shock. But it also says in verse 15 that, city of, that the city of Susa, Jew and Gentile, was in a complete state of confusion. And so it's interesting, you have this casual confidence of the king and Haman having cocktails, right? This, this casual confidence and this complete confusion are taking place at the same time. And you know what that reminds me of? Life. You got people doing stuff and they're just completely casual. And then you got all this confusion going on. And guess who's in control of this casual confidence and this complete confusion? God's in control, man. The evil people are chilling. The non-evil people are freaking out. And God's in control. That's just life. It's a perfect picture of life. It's the typical arena in which our Lord performs the stuff that he does. I wonder, I don't know about you, but I wonder what all happened when on the cross Jesus breathed his last. I wonder how many places there were of casual confidence and complete confusion. And in the midst of all that, who was at work? God was at work. That's life. And that's our Lord. Praise be to his name. Haman presents to all 127 provinces, this is what Haman presents, okay? A bulletproof plan. This plan is bulletproof. It's going to happen. Bulletproof plan. The first thing, the scribes were summoned to write the decree. It says, just as Haman commanded. That's the first thing. The second part, the decree was sent to the satraps, the governors, and the princes of each people. That's the second thing. The third thing, it was done according, it was written according to the script and language of each people group. The fourth thing, it was written in the name of the king. The fifth thing, it was sealed with the king's signature, with his signet ring. And the sixth thing is it was published to all the people so that they would be ready for that day. This is a bulletproof plan. <laughs> how, oh how, can the Lord possibly deliver from this bulletproof plan? What a dark day. What a dark day. Have you ever been up against bulletproof plans? It's a dark day, isn't it? What do you do? How do you react? 
This is a great story that reminds us that bulletproof plans are nothing up against the Almighty God. Amen? So, in closing, we must always remember this quote. God is always working on behalf of his people. There's never a moment when God is not working on behalf of his people. Never. And so when we're in those hard spots, we brush up against one another, and we can lovingly say, God is always at work on your behalf. And we can say that to one another. God is always working on behalf of his people, always working on behalf of his people. Haman intended to rid the world of God's covenant people. That was his intention. Job 42, verse 2 says this. Job says to the Lord, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Job was in the midst of some pretty nasty stuff. The Messiah was to come from the Jewish nation. Clearly, God was not and cannot be thwarted. And check out Proverbs 16.33 as we end our time. I love this. <laughs> the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God's in control. We serve a sovereign God. Amen?